from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Salahi Azadi with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Lina Mohammed in for Martine Powers. It's Monday, March 22nd. Today, the AstraZeneca vaccine's trial in the U.S., plus Google's faltering efforts to work with historically Black universities. A fourth vaccine in the United States, developed by the University of Oxford and the pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca, reported results from a long-anticipated large trial with more than 30,000 people, and they found that it was very effective at preventing illness overall, 79% effective and completely effective against severe cases of disease. Carolyn Johnson is a science reporter for The Post. This was kind of a very big event for this company and for the world because this vaccine is inexpensive, easy to transport, and having another large randomized trial kind of clearly showing whether that it does work very well will just help increase its uptake and use everywhere. The goal right now is really to end the crisis phase of the pandemic when people are sick, becoming very sick, overwhelming hospitals and potentially dying. All the vaccines look extremely effective against that outcome. And so there's been like a message not to shop around um, and to get whatever vaccine you can get as soon as you can, because we're still really constrained by supply in the United States, even though the vaccine supply is increasing. How does this trial, like, impact the fight against the the virus here in the U.S.? Well, right now the U.S. is in a good position because we have three other vaccines already approved and their supply is rapidly increasing. And there should be enough for every American adult by the end of May. At least that's the projection. But having a fourth vaccine is even better. It buffers us against any possible delays in manufacturing or unexpected shortfalls that could occur. And we're so, so fortunate. Like a year ago, no one knew if we'd have any vaccines. But, you know, practically whether that means we're going to use these doses or perhaps they might be donated to other countries. I mean, it just remains to be seen. On paper, we have enough doses right now for every American adult, but we have to kind of wait to see how they're used. Just last week, the U.S. announced that it was going to be sending some of its AstraZeneca supply to Mexico and Canada. But what I don't understand is, like, how are we sending it to people if our FDA, like our agency, did not approve it? Well, one of the things about the whole way we did vaccines in the United States is we manufactured doses before we knew if they worked. It's financially risky because if they don't work, you might throw all of that away and all the money you spent on it was wasted. But we did do that and we have doses and other countries have used other data to decide that these vaccines are safe and effective or satisfied those countries' regulators. So this vaccine, AstraZeneca, is uh, one of the vaccines that is available in Europe. Um, A few countries have recently suspended its usage, however. Why was that? 
They observed some rare blood clotting events and they weren't sure if they were related to vaccination or not. Many bad outcomes happen after people are vaccinated, and it's always a question whether there's any causal relationship. So they paused it in some countries as they were investigating whether there's any relationship, how rare the events are, etc. So So those blood clotting concerns, did the World Health Organization or the European Medicines Agency, did they like weigh in on those? Did they say anything? Yes, they've repeatedly said the vaccine is safe and effective. The committee has come to a clear scientific conclusion. This is a safe and effective vaccine. Its benefits in protecting people from COVID-19 with the associated risks of death and hospitalization outweigh the possible risks. So will this vaccine be available to Americans anytime soon? Well, for this vaccine, we will see the company announce, probably announce that it submits its EUA in a few short weeks, is what they said today. There will be uh, an FDA advisory committee meeting, which is a full day event where people go through the data exhaustively and decide whether it's safe and effective, vote to recommend it or not. And then the FDA decides, usually within a day, whether or not it meets the criteria for authorization. And then we'll have a really interesting question about how it's used or if it's used in the United States. There's just a lot of speculation swirling about it because we have three vaccines already with a lot of supply. And are we going to need this vaccine? You know, could it be countries that have given far fewer vaccines? These are all kind of questions we'll probably see debated. All of the vaccines are really critical tools for getting back to normal if we if we can get there. So what we need is to vaccinate as many people as possible and having another supplier is really good for the US. It's really good for the world because we often think about it in the narrow constraint of America, but there are many other countries out there and you know this is a highly contagious virus, so we need to broaden immunity in the whole world. So having another cheap, widely available vaccine in our arsenal is going to be really great. Carolyn Johnson is a science reporter for The Post. Alexis Diao produced the story. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. So I've been covering race in Silicon Valley for more than a decade, and I had always assumed that tech company outreach efforts to HBCUs was sort of diversity 101. Natasha Tiku writes about tech culture for The Post. She thought recruiting students from historically black colleges and universities would be a no-brainer, especially for tech companies trying to diversify their workforce. Why wouldn't you? It's so obvious, you know, here you're guaranteed to get, you know, these really talented black graduates. 
But according to Google's diversity reports, only 2% of their technical workers are black. That number has not changed since 2014, despite the company's stated goals of increasing its diversity. Natasha spoke to Martine about her reporting on this. I started focusing on Google in particular after a tweet storm that went viral from one of their recruiters, April Christina Curley, who talked about her experiences with bias behind the scenes and her efforts to diversify the pool of technical talent at Google. My name is April Christina Curley, and I am from Columbia, Maryland. I am a teacher by trade and somehow found my career path in tech where I was at Google for the past six years, exclusively working with historically Black colleges and universities. I learned very quickly that there hadn't been a ton of diversity initiatives with the company when it comes to specifically working with historically Black colleges and universities. And, you know, when I had been talking to HBCU professors, they often mentioned that Google was a bit ahead of the curve in reaching out to these students. So I was trying to find out in my research, you know, what is the what is the gap between Google having this great reputation starting early and then some of these internal biases that I started to hear more about as I reached out to Google employees and recruiters. When I joined, I knew that that was obviously a gap that that needed to be filled in. So what are some of the numbers that you saw that really demonstrate that there is a real lack of HBCU grads at companies like Google? In the course of reporting, one document I came across was called Project Bison, and that's named after the mascot for Howard University. And it was a plan to try to kind of change the curriculum at HBCUs, uh, not only at Howard, but they had plans to change it kind of across the board, the computer science curriculum. And in that document, it noted that in Google's history, it had never hired an HBCU computer science grad into an entry-level software role. And I should say, so this is from 2013. At this point, Google is like well into its second decade. It's like a 15-year-old company. And, you know, the data point isn't presented as, you know, this is something that is wrong with Google. It's presented as a flaw in the HBCU curriculum. But how is this reality behind the scenes different from the image that a lot of tech companies are trying to portray or, or even Google specifically? Tech companies like Google, Facebook, etc. started releasing their gender and race breakdown of their workforces. This is after years of, in many cases, fighting against requests to have that information be public. And we saw a very alarming lack of racial diversity, especially in their engineering departments. One of the things we noticed on our end was that when students who were attending HBCUs would apply to Google, the screeners who had the authority and the right to read over a resume and like either reject it immediately or move it forward. Oftentimes these screeners would reject students um, with, you know, a university or college name that they didn't recognize. And in Google's case, as part of their first diversity report, they mentioned their partnerships with HBCUs. So all along, really, the outreach programs that they had to institutions like Howard University were the crown jewel of their campaign. You know, um, it really helped kind of cement Google's reputation as a leader within Silicon Valley of uh, efforts to close the race gap. 
Well, so if there was this very public campaign for Google to partner with Howard to talk about its relationship with HBCUs, then why is there this huge gap between what that partnership was supposed to be and how it is actually played out? Right. So, you know, once I ended up talking to former recruiters and Google employees, what they said was that despite this high profile effort, the company kind of still undervalued students and faculty from these institutions and in a way underinvested in these efforts. We basically just had to school them on like, here's why you should not be rejecting these kids just because you're unaware of the school that they attended. It doesn't mean that they're any less qualified. One of their most high profile programs is called Tech Exchange, where they have students come out here to Mountain View in California to the Google campus to work with Google engineers and their own professors. Google spent $1.3 million on that last year, but that's divided among 10 HBCUs and um, Hispanic serving institutions, which are colleges where like roughly a quarter percent of the student body is, is Latinx. And that's just not (laughs) that doesn't reflect the kinds of numbers that we see in their annual diversity reports where it might be Google has donated a hundred million dollars to, you know, efforts to close the pipeline or one hundred and fifty million dollars. You know, it's not to say that they're not investing in other areas or that they're not maybe ahead of some of their competitors, but it just wasn't the kind of commitment of resources and time and energy that we see when companies really want to work on self-driving cars. It wasn't the same kind of commitment of resources. So one thing I learned as I'm talking to Google recruiters is that up until last summer, the company's university programs department was ranking schools. They had this internal system and there would be an elite tier and that is uh, Stanford University, Carnegie Mellon, MIT. And then they have tier one and tier two schools, which might be, you know, an institution like Georgia Tech, which graduates tens of thousands of engineers. But there was one big category missing from that internal ranking system, and that was HBCUs. And inside the company up until 2019 or so, these institutions were referred to as quote unquote long tail schools, a framework that showed that these were schools that were not expected to produce a Google caliber of engineer, you know, en masse in the same way the other institutions would. And that, um, you know, according to April and other recruiters that I spoke with, that framework really kind of shaped the way the companies thought about these schools. You know, when you're asking for more money, the amount of resources are being allocated by tier. And these institutions don't even have a tier, you know, uh, it just, it ends up kind of affecting the way you think about their readiness, their worth, the caliber of their students and faculty. And what does Google say about this? The fact that despite all of their very public efforts, that that hasn't really translated to an actual tangible shift in the number of Black people who work there, but especially Black engineers. So the company would say that their relationships with HBCUs are just one facet of a you know multifaceted approach where they have many recruiters who are working in other um, 
departments to try to get black engineers. And I would say, you know, they don't talk about this publicly as much. But what I had heard was that they're shifting their focus away from HBCUs and towards schools where they already recruit from that have a higher percentage of black engineers because, you know, all along. So it's been seven years at least, you know, since they've publicize these efforts. And in that time, other institutions have also made an effort to diversify their ranks, other schools. These are massive companies that in this time have hired tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. So to change those ratios, they really do need to hire en masse. What was the sense that you got from people both at Google and also at HBCUs about how Google and companies like Google think about historically black colleges or their role in being able to train the best and brightest when it comes to computers and computer engineering? The faculty and administrators that I spoke to were really grateful in large part for Google's efforts. You know, they did say that it helped them modernize the curriculum and prepare students better for you know, practical roles in Silicon Valley. There's a real emphasis on um, learning by doing rather than learning by theory. Um, you know, they changed the computer science languages that they focused on from C++ to Python. And, you know, there was a lot of interview prep. However, I think that there, you know, there was also a little bit of a sense of disrespect. To come into these schools assuming that they don't know how to better prepare their engineers or, you know, also just maybe not understanding some of the challenges that these students face, um, you know, that is a question of, of resources and the size of a college's endowment and the fact that, you know, some students might be coming in and learning computer science for the first time in their freshman year. And, you know, that shouldn't eliminate someone from a chance to join an industry that's like, you know, the biggest money making opportunity in America right now, you know, like the most promising sector. And uh, I think that they are, you know, kind of trying to learn from each other, both the schools and the tech companies. Natasha Tiku writes about tech culture for The Post. Martine Powers is the host of Post Reports. Jordan Marie Smith produced the story. for Post Reports. Thank you for listening. Renny Svernovsky mixed today's show. We're looking for stories about upcoming reunions after vaccination. Are you about to see your family or your friends for the first time in a year? Are you finally going back to your hairstylist? Is she going to see that you gave yourself bangs in quarantine? We'd love to hear from you. Send a voice memo or an email to postreports at washpost.com telling us about your upcoming reunion or better yet, record it. You can use the Voice Memo app or take a video on your phone and email that to us too. I'm Lina Mohammed. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. 
In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.